0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. This morning, is we're going to be continuing in our studies of 1 Samuel. This is actually our last study in 1 Samuel. <clears throat> and after this, we'll be getting the Christmas series which starts next week, it's called Good News of, of Great Joy. But as we turn our thoughts to First Samuel in this final chapter, I wanna ask you, how many of you actually saw the funeral of Queen Elizabeth or watched any of that? A Bunch of you saw some of that. And she died, what was it? I wrote this down here, it was September 8th she died, age of 96. If I'm correct, I think she was the longest reigning British monarch in history. Is that true, guys? Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm making sure I have my trivia, right? I looked this up on, on Wikipedia. When she was, for her viewing was at Westminster Abbey from, was it September 14th to September 19th? They say 250,000 people uh, came to see her. Pretty crazy. At her funeral, there were representatives from 168 different countries that were there in fact her funeral if I read this right was the most watched televised event in the 21st century I don't know if that's just in England or if that's overall but I guess a lot of people want to be part of a Queen's funeral because the death of a monarch is apparently a very big deal now I'm not somebody who follows the British royal monarchy but apparently a lot of people do But as we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31, it's a chapter about a death of a monarch, not the death of a queen, but it's about the death of a king. And just as the death of a queen in our time is a really big deal, the death of a king in their time is also a really big deal, and it changes everything. So if you have your outlines, (coughs) we're going to be in the top. Let's begin with a little bit of background. Now, King Saul's death should not be coming to us as a complete surprise. If you've been with us for earlier parts of this, this series, you know that uh, the idea that King Saul is going to pass away has been something that's been talked about for a while. In fact, his obituary, you remember, came in 1 Samuel chapter 14. That's like way earlier in the book. And that was because of his intentional rebellion against God. And God said, you know, you're done. And for the next 16 chapters, it's just a long, slow, downward spiral as King Saul gets worse and worse and worse. And he just continues to demonstrate that he is no longer worthy to be a king. In fact, it all sort of comes to a head in chapter 28. Remember when he actually uh, was so frustrated that God was not speaking to him, he visited a witch for guidance? Now, hey when the head of God's people goes to a witch for guidance, you know you've hit the all-time low, right? And this is the vital end for him. Now, as we've been doing these last few chapters of 1 Samuel, for those of you who are are newer today, you need to know that these last chapters ping-pong back and forth between the story of David and what's going on with him and the story of King Saul with what's going on with him because David will soon become king as we get to 2 Samuel. And what's happened was uh, David was... What brought to a head, David was just so tired of being chased by Saul. Constantly having Saul try to take his life, he eventually escaped to the enemy. He went and hid among the Philistines, trying to get some rest from all the hard things that Saul was doing to him. And he did get rest from King Saul, but while he was with the Philistines, he pretended to be a Philistine and it worked too well. Because you remember that when the Philistines decided to go to war against the Israelites, Achish, king of Gath, one of the Philistine cities, forcibly enlisted David and his men into the Philistine army. And David was going to find himself doing the one thing he had tried so long not to do, which is to put his hand out against the Lord's anointed. And then last week, we saw how God rescued David from that. Because when um, the Philistine lords, which there are five Philistine lords, so sort of our board of directors of the Philistine nation, when they gathered at the uh, city of Aphek to review the troops, and they saw David and his men at the end of Achish's troops, they were not too excited about having Israelites at the rear of them while they're fighting King Saul and the Israelites in front of them. It seemed like too risky of an operation. So, uh, the Philistine lords kicked David out of the Philistine army, which was actually a wonderful answer because David would no longer be forced to fight against Saul. And what we saw at that time, well, David and his men went south to the city of Ziklag, which was their home in Philistine territory, while the Philistines went north to the city of Shunem which is where their battle would be staged from. In fact, we show a little bit like this. This shows you where Aphek was in the middle, where um, that inspection took place. and You can see how they went north to Shunem, and then David and his men went south to Ziklag. Now, incidentally, when they went north to Shunem, that gives us to the point of what happened in chapter 28, where Saul, at that point, uh, visited the witch of Endor, which you can see how the map looks like for this. There's Shunem, there's Saul in Mount Gilboa, where his troops were located at. And this is when he went north to visit the witch of of Endor, right there. And what we saw, um, while the Philistines were in the north, David was in the south, and he came back to Ziklag. You remember this if you were here last week. He came back to find the city completely destroyed, completely burned to the ground, the women and children gone... And that was when David hit the ultimate low point in his life, rock bottom. It's finally the point where he turned back to God and he started seeking God instead of running from God. He let God direct his life, no longer him directing his life, which was a good reminder for us. Sometimes God brings us to rock bottom to get us to turn back to him. And I think all of us can think of times when we've been there. Yeah, we get an amen on that one. Um, Then... God was so gracious. Then God quickly restored David and used him to actually find the Amalekites and to um, capture and and free the women and children and lose none of it. Now, while David was destroying the Amalekites in the south, the text as we pick up this morning is going to describe what was going on with King Saul in the Philistines a hundred miles north in the valley of Jezreel. And the text, as we'll see, is very clear that uh, even the Hebrew grammar, the way it's put together, that these two events were occurring simultaneously. While David was destroying the Amalekites in the south, at the same time, things were not going too well for Saul versus the Philistines in the north. In fact, they were going rather poorly. And so that gives us the topic we're going to develop our study under this morning which is sort of a depressing way to look at it, but it's sort of a truthful way to (laughs) summarize the chapter. What does King Saul teach us about death? Because that's what we're going to see in this chapter, a lot of death. And I think there's some things we can learn from what happens here. The first thing we're going to see is this. (coughs) A successful life is not necessarily long, but it is faithful. A successful life is not necessarily long, but it is faithful. (coughs) It begins in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. As I told you earlier, uh, this... Is interesting here. The Hebrew here is very clear that this is concurrent to what was taking place uh, in the last chapter with David and the Amalekites. It literally says, and now for a continuation of the story. And it zooms in to see what's going on with the Philistines and things are not going well. We saw that uh, Shunem is a, thank you so much Kevin, is a mountain and then there is a Mount Gilboa that is in the the other side. Go ahead and put that up. Thank you. And there's this Jezreel Valley in the middle. And most likely, the battle would have begun in the Jezreel Valley. And if you've been with us for previous studies in this series, you know that the Philistines had this wonderful tactical advantage. They knew about how to do metalworking. They knew how to make swords. They knew how to make body armor. And most importantly for this, they knew how to make iron chariots, and they had kept that technology away from the Israelites. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, remember at the Battle of Michmash, the Philistines had brought 30,000 chariots to that battle. And if you're an Israelite, mostly fighting with sticks and stones, and you're in the valley, and you're fighting the Philistines with iron chariots, which is a rough equivalent of an ancient tank, you would be slaughtered. And that's apparently how this battle began. The Israelites were being absolutely slaughtered in the valley. And what they quickly did is they retreated, and they tried to go up Mount Gilboa. Now, the thing about a chariot is a chariot does not work really good going up a mountain. So this was a defensive posture for them so they can get away from people. But then the next verse zooms in even more. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. Among the soldiers scurrying up the hill to get away from those chariots was a small group of which the Philistines took a special interest. King Saul and his sons. And it says, overtook them. The idea is that the uh, soldiers that were in front of them, the Philistines focused on them and were able to get through those outer ring of soldiers and then get closer and actually be attacking King Saul's sons and King Saul himself. The Philistines are no dummies. They know that in a battle, you wanna pick the high value targets on the battlefield. Isn't this what we see in Ukraine and Russia? What are the Ukrainians trying to do? Bump off the Russian generals. Because those are the high-value targets on the field. The Philistines are like, hey, we're doing the same thing. We want to bump off King Saul. We want to bump off his sons. Those are the high-value targets. And then we read, And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. Now Saul had um, actually more than three sons. He has another son known as Ishvi. We'll read about him in 2 Samuel by his longer full name. It's ish at that point. And Saul watches these three sons die in front of him as they are trying to defend him. This is horrific for him as a father. But I also want to think of it from a different angle. While it's horrific for a father to watch his three sons die, I think it's also rather heroic. These three sons died defending their father. None of them ran away. None of them turned as a coward and says, you know, dad, this is all your fault for your rebellion against God. Dad, this is because you visited a witch. You have it coming. None of them did that. They all defended their father to the point of death, which is a heroic thing to do. Now, of these three sons, the one that we're most familiar with is Jonathan. We've learned about him in previous chapters. Jonathan is a man of exemplary character. He is an extremely godly man we saw that he was one of the first men to recognize that David would be king. Even though Jonathan was next in line to be king, he didn't right like hold his position. He wasn't jealous of David. He supported David. He knew what God was doing and he humbly let David assume the position that he should have been assuming. When there was war between Saul, his father, and David, he courageously sort of talked to his father about it. He even, remember that one time we've looked at earlier, he brought peace between him and his father, risking his life to do this. And remember what Saul had done to him? Once Saul had tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, tried to kill his own son. Another time, he threatened to take his son's life, Jonathan's life, and the army ransomed him out of this. We saw that in previous chapters. So twice Saul tried to kill Jonathan. Yet, this is the same Jonathan who was so honorable that he was willing to defend his father. This same father who tried to kill him twice defend his father to the point of death. Now, Today, we often see children, when it comes to their parents, they say, you know, my my father or my mother has made some really bad choices. They have it coming. They've made their bed, now they have to live in it. And the the children sort of step to the side and like, let them have what they have coming. If anybody deserved what they had coming, it would have saw but yet his sons three of his sons defended him to the point of death on this day. And I thought to myself as I was studying, man, what an incredible challenge to us to how does it, what does it look like to live an honorable life? To be faithful. Isn't that sort of the the theme of Jonathan's life? Faithful. He was always faithful, faithful to David. When David was down and he was in the wilderness of Ziklag, remember that? And he was depressed. Jonathan came. Jonathan encouraged him. He was faithful to David. Wasn't he faithful to his own father? His own father, who was in many ways a failure. His own father who had made a huge mess of things. Jonathan was faithful all the way to the end. And I thought, you know, this sort of redefines for us what does a successful life look like? It may not be a long life, but it's a faithful life. Faithful all the way to the end. You know, we think of uh, marriage vows and wedding, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. What does a faithful life look like? Keeping those vows all the way to the end. Because you know, life gets hard People get sick, life gets difficult. In the world around us, we think what does successful life look like? It means you have lots of money. Successful life means you vacation in Florida over the winter. Successful life means you have a yacht. No, it. it no, I mean you may have lots of money, you may have a yacht, but that's not what a faithful life look like, looks like. A, fa- a successful life is one that is faithful all the way to the end and honors those who should be given honor, even when it's not necessarily that easy. So here's your bullet point. These sons gave up their lives protecting a failed father. Their lives were a success not because they were long, but because they were faithful. Now, <clears throat> as we continue, we reread this. The battle pressed hard against Saul. Once Saul's sons were done, and the, the Philistines could now focus on their father it says, the archers found him. Well, the chariots, we know, could not go up Mount Gilboa, but the Israelite soldiers who were fleeing, who were trying to go up Mount Gilboa, would leave their backs exposed, which is a great place to place a nice arrow. Saul, at this point, has all of the archers focusing on him. There is a hailstorm of razor-sharp arrows falling all around him and on him. And we read this: And he was badly wounded by the archers. I mean, the mental picture that comes to my mind as I think about this is I think about someone who looks like a human porcupine. I mean, he has all these arrows in him. He can't lay down because the arrows would push into him. He can barely walk because they're all stuck in him. He's just a man in complete agony. Remember, by the way, that he wore armor. And he wore body armor, and that's a good thing. And so the arrows were not arrows that had gone into the body armor. They are arrows that had gone in the seams of the body armor and those few places where the body armor did not cover. Of course, his vital organs would have been covered. So a lot of these wounds would not have been fatal to the vital organs, but they'd be all over him. Just a complete piece of frustration. And he knows he's going to die. It's just a matter of time. That brings us to our second point, which is this. Suicide is not a God-honoring way to die. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Saul, having seen his sons die, and now having all these um, arrows in his armor, knows that he believes it's only a matter of time until he's going to die. And he was concerned that if the Philistines were able to scurry up that hill and they were to find him and he was not completely dead, they would torture him to the point of death, which, by the way, is not completely unfounded. We know in Judges chapter 16, when the Philistines were able to get a hold of Samson, they gouged out his eyes and then put him into forced labor. So this idea of keeping somebody alive and tormenting them was not foreign to the Philistines. So King Saul asks his armor-bearer to kill him. And then we read this. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. The armor-bearer was a, a young man, and this young man was like David. This young man was afraid to put his hand out against the Lord's anointed afraid to kill the king, so he refused to do it. So Saul attempted to kill himself. (coughs) Now when we get to 2 Samuel, uh, in in chapter 1, which we'll get to later this winter, we'll see that apparently, it it seems like uh, he wasn't able to effectively kill himself completely, and he had to have somebody else attempt to kill him again. But this brings us to the idea of a topic that I don't think I've ever talked about on a Sunday morning, but it just comes screaming out of this text. And so even though this is right after Thanksgiving, at a time of thankfulness, we're gonna talk about the issue of suicide. Because here, Saul is attempting suicide. He's attempting assisted suicide. It is all over the place. Let me tell you this. Suicide is not an honorary death. It is a cowardly death. You know, I want to recognize, by the way, and be compassionate for those who are mentally ill and commit suicide. I understand that. That's different. And I understand those who have severe depression uh, that end up committing suicide. I I recognize those things. I want to be compassionate to that. So please don't lump everyone in here. But Saul is not that way. This is a very cold and calculated decision on Saul's part. He's looking at life from a worldly perspective. He says, it doesn't look like I'm going to have that long to live, so I want somebody to kill me or help me kill myself. And it seems like, in one sense, it's a normal thing. It's a good thing. He doesn't want to be tortured. He knows he's not going to live long, but he wants to commit suicide. But I'll tell you this, this is still an act of rebellion against God. His life has been a life without God. And he wants to determine the day of his death, which is something that only God really has authority to do. It's one continual act of rebellion against God after the other. Notice what we don't see in these moments. If I was Saul, I would think you'd see in these final moments of his life, he'd be calling out to God for forgiveness. He'd be calling out to God for mercy. He'd be calling out to God for help. We don't see any of that. All we see is him wanting to determining his life. He wanted to determine his life and now he wants to determine his death. This is all rebellion against God. <clears throat> now in the notes I put down in this, There are six suicides in the Bible, and all are portrayed, by the way, as tragic ends of life, not honorable ends of life. There is uh, 1 Samuel 31, which is King Saul that we're looking at. There's King Saul's armor bearer that we're also going to look at this morning. There's Abimelech who asks for somebody to kill him after he's injured in Judges 9. There's Ahithophel who hangs himself in 2 Samuel 17. There's Zimri, who's a guy who burns a house down around him to kill himself. And then, of course, we all know Judas. All tragic ends of life. Not godly ends of life. So suicide is never in the Bible pictured in a positive way. Another thing to say about this. Suicide, by the way, is a form of murder. Now, um... The Bible is very clear, you shall not murder. But sometimes people forget that when they kill themselves, they are murdering somebody. They're murdering themselves. The scripture says this in Genesis And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. And then eh, Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Now, if I would to say to you, do you want to kill somebody's son? You'd say, no. Would you murder somebody's mother? Oh, absolutely not. I'd never do that. Would you kill somebody's father or somebody's brother? you say, oh, I wouldn't dare do that. But when somebody commits suicide... They are somebody's son, they are somebody's daughter, they are probably somebody's mother, they are probably somebody's father. They are killing themselves, but they're killing somebody, (laughs) they're loved by somebody, they're cared about by somebody. Another thing to mention, hopelessness by the way is not a time for suicide. Many times people get to the point they feel hopeless. They think they should take their life. But we see in the scriptures many times people feel hopeless, but that's not the end of their life. Look at this in Ecclesiastes 2:17. Solomon reached the point where he says, "I hated even of life itself." 1 Kings 19:4. Elijah was fearful and so depressed he says, "I want to die." Jonah, chapter 4, verse 8. Jonah was so angry at God he wanted to die. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 8, Paul was so down he despaired of life itself. And we all know Job lost everything, lost his self, and then his wife told him, curse God and die. But then we continue. When Solomon despaired of life, it says when, that's when he learned that the duty of man was to fear God and to keep his commandments. It's at the bottom of life where he learned the purpose of life. When Elijah wanted to die, that's when he was comforted by an angel. When Jonah wanted to die, that's when God showed him his own selfishness and sin so he could actually repent of it. Job had everything restored to him after God took everything from him. Now, if Job had said, well, it can't get any worse than this, I should commit suicide, how would the story have gone? You see, God is the one who controls the day of our death, He knows everything we're going through in our life. It is not our job or our prerogative to rebel against him and decide to take our life, to murder our own self. Paul, in his despair, learned not to rely, he says, on himself, but on God who raises the dead. That when he got to the end of his life and despair of life itself is when he learned to actually rely on God in a way he had never relied on him before. In some ways, you could say it's a good thing God brought him to the end of himself. So he actually grew in his love and dependence on God. Now, this brings us to another topic that's sort of related to it, but it's important to it. The Bible condemns assisted suicide. Now, when I talk about assisted suicide, I'm not talking about a person that is in the hospital that is on life support, that is on a machine, that the doctors say, you know, if I unplug this machine after months or after you know, weeks, I don't think they're gonna live long. That's not what I'm talking about by assisted suicide. That's a whole different thing. I'm talking about somebody who's maybe been diagnosed with cancer. The doctors say you have six months to live or maybe you have a year to live. And there's people saying, well, I only have six months to live, so why don't I just, have the doctor give me some medicine so I could get it over with, so I can bump myself off. By the way, that's very common. Right now in the United States, there are 10 states where physician-assisted suicide is completely legal. In Vermont of 2021, they now made physician-assisted suicide legal by telemedicine. Can you imagine that? You call the phone, the phone number, You talk to the doctor on the phone and say, well, I don't think I have long to live. I have cancer. Can you send me, give me a prescription? And they give you a prescription and you can take it and you die. That's not really good at all. Now, I told you Saul botched his first suicide attempt. It seems like he fell on his sword. And by the way, it seems like he didn't die at first. Because when you get to 2 Samuel, we're not going to have a chance to get too much into this this morning, we read about him asking for further help of his suicide attempt. And look how this turns out. <coughs> and he said to me, this is, by the way, uh, the, um, an Amalekite soldier that has come to David, that has reported the end of Saul. This is the Amalekite soldier speaking. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. Just a matter of time, so I thought I'd help him get it over with. And look how David responds. Then David called one of the young men and said to him, Go, execute him. For he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your, with your own mouth you have testified, has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, my point simply is this. David doesn't see this Amalekite soldier taking the last bit of Saul's life as an act of compassion. He saw it as assisted murder and that life should be respected. Nobody has the right to take it, even if somebody is dying. Now you say, well, why? Shouldn't we just get it over with if we're in the process of dying? What came to mind is my own mother. Now you guys know that she passed away about seven years ago of cancer. And as she was going through the cancer, um, it got to the point where we couldn't continue to care for her. My father, who was definitely not in a position to care for her, so she was brought into the nursing home to care for her. And by the way, mom wasn't really happy about being in the nursing home. She would prefer to be in her own home. And I totally get that. And she was sort of frustrated about it. And so I was talking to her and I said, you know, Mom, maybe the, God, the reason that God has brought you into the nursing home is not so it's comfortable for you, but so you're around a whole bunch of nurses that are caring for you. And that this is God giving you a chance to tell them about Jesus before you go home to be with Jesus. And, you know, my mom, she's a wonderful woman, and she took that to heart. And there is the nurses were caring for her. She had days to live. She was telling them about Jesus, her Savior. You know, God has us on this earth until he chooses to take us home. Just as he was sovereign over the day of your birth, he's sovereign over the day of your death, and until he takes you home, he has you here for not for your comfort, but for his glory. You understand that? When people talk about suicide, they want to kill themselves because life is no longer comfortable for me. It's not beneficial for me. But life was never about you to begin with. It's all about us bringing glory to Jesus. And sometimes we can preach him best when we're in the most uncomfortable positions. Because people can see very clearly when we're uncomfortable, who we truly trust in. Isn't that true? If we're trusting in Jesus, or if we're trusting in himself. Now, there's another issue of suicide we have to talk about here. Suicide leads to copycat deaths. And then we read this in verse five. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. This is one of the hardest parts about suicide, especially when you have people who are in influential positions who commit suicide, people who are influential like King Saul. People who look up to you and admire you will often try to imitate you. And that's exactly what this young man did. Well, if King Saul will take his life, then maybe I should take my life give you some statistics on this. You guys remember Marilyn Monroe, 1970s, when she committed suicide? Do you know the rate of suicides in the United States increased by 12% the year she took herself? Unprecedented. Why? All copycat suicides. If my hero takes her life, maybe I should take her life. You know, I think about this. What a terrible legacy to leave behind. When someone who commits suicide, they leave a terrible legacy behind. In someone who commits assisted suicide leaves a terrible legacy behind. Legacy for their children, legacy for their grandchildren, legacy for their family. Because it's let's face it, isn't it true that in the family, if you have somebody who committed suicide or committed assisted suicide, you think when life gets bad in your life, well, maybe you should do the same thing. You can feel that pressure. I'll give you some examples with this. On Cindy's side of the family, uh, she has a relative who was a very successful businessman in Chicago. Made a lot of money. He came down with cancer. And as it was starting to get a little more serious, uh, all of a sudden his life ended. Took a gun, put it to his head and blew his brains out. And on that side of the family, every time he's talked about to this day, it's sort of like that hush You know, nobody really wants to talk about him. And there's always that legacy that goes around for his children and for his grandchildren and his relatives. Maybe, you know, if life gets hard for us, maybe we should do the same. Let me give you another legacy and tell you the powerful legacy and how important it is you live your final days in a way that brings glory to Christ. This comes from my side of the family. I was growing up, I was probably six maybe eight, ten years old, in that realm, we would go and visit my Uncle Harvey, lived near my grandmother lived. Uncle Harvey and his wife were there, and she was dementia. I, I know it because she had, you, you could ask her like things, and she would tell you the same stories, one right after the other, keep repeating herself and laughing at it. You know, I'm like, it happens. That's what happens you get to that stage. I understand, no big deal. She had a surgery, and then the operation, something went bad, and she never gained consciousness again. And they put a feeding tube in her, And uh, that's, they fed her, and she was in a nursing home. And in that day, you couldn't take the feeding tube out once you had put the feeding tube in because there's no such thing as this whole living will thing you guys know about. It hadn't been done. And so here is my Uncle Harvey, an old man, too old to drive once a day, sometimes twice a day, he would walk, walk over to the nursing home, and there be next to his wife. And I saw it when I was a little kid. He would talk to her, he would move her so she wouldn't get bed sores. He would hold her hand and tell her about his day, and all she could do, and this is for years, was stare at the ceiling. Every once in a while, there'd be a little grass that would come out of her hand when he was holding it. We didn't know if that was a reflex reaction, or if that was the only way she could respond to him and say, I love you. He did that for years until she died, and then he eventually died. And when I got to age 24 and I married my wife, I remember thinking back to those visions of me being an eight-year-old in the corner of the room watching him care for her in the nursing home and walking in the snow and in the rain to go see her. And I said, I don't know what life's going to hold, but I'll tell you one thing. I want to be just like him if life falls apart for me and my wife. What a powerful legacy. He had no idea he was planting into a little kid's head. You choose suicide. You choose assisted suicide. That legacy is tarnished. That legacy is really ruined in a big way. So I would strongly speak against this. Let me read this. Then Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all of his men on the same day together. By the way, all of his men is not the entire army. It's all of the secret service around him, if you want to call it, or the royal guard with him. This brings us to our third point. Speaking about death, remember the good works of fallen spiritual leaders, not just their bad beginning of verse seven, and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. <coughs> you know, it's not really an easy, not that hard. I mean once Saul and his sons were dead, the people in the cities around there did they just walked away and left. and the Philistines went right into a made an easy victory. And you need to understand what this did to them as a nation. This was the center line of the nation. It divided the northern tribes from the southern tribes, greatly diminishing Israel economically and Israel militarily. Think of it like cutting off the east coast from the west coast because another country just took over the Midwest in our country. It's the same kind of thing. And the next day. When the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head. By the way, he was worried what they would do to him and how they would torture him if they found him alive. Well, they didn't find him alive, but we're going to see what they do to him when they find him dead. They take off his head. Incidentally, this chapter, 1 Samuel 31, is also said in almost identical format. It's recounted in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. There's a few more details 1 Chronicles 10 adds to this. Here's one of them. And they put his armor in the temple of their guards, and they fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Remember Dagon? 1 Samuel chapter 4, that's where they put the Ark of the Covenant. Now they're going to (laughs) fashion Saul's head there. Pretty grotesque. War trophy, but that's what they did. And they stripped off his armor. So now his body was completely naked and headless, by the way. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fashioned his body to the wall of beth Shan. Ashtoreth, by the way, is the uh, female deity in the Philistines, like Dagon was the male deity, Ashtoreth was the goddess of war. So it sort of makes sense that you would put his armor in her temple as a trophy from the war. Now, in the final scene, what we're going to see is something that's a little different than we've expected. This quick summary that I read to you, obviously, it's all about Saul's complete and total humiliation and degradation. But these last verses go a different direction. Remember that Saul had reigned, actually for a total of about 40 years. The last 10 years were the really fast, steep decline. But do you remember in the beginning, actually he was a pretty good king when he first started? You remember this, if you've been with us for this series, remember when there was Nahash, the Ammonite, and he was conquering all the cities east of the Jordan River. And remember what he did with people when he conquered them? He gouged out their right eyes. And then there was one city left of east of the Jordan River. It was Jabesh Gilead. And... That was the one city he wanted to get and they you know, held up in the city and they asked for help throughout the nation. And this is before Saul had really begun to do much as a king. Saul heard of their plea for help and he mobilized the entire nation. The nation came and rescued the city of Jabesh-Gilead and destroyed Nahash the Ammonite once and for all. That took place 30 to 42 years prior to this. But I'll tell you what... The people of Jabesh-Gilead had not forgotten how grateful they were to Saul for what he had done. And when they hear about this desecration of his body, this is what they do. But all the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth-shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. By the way, this is not an easy task. This is 10 miles one way, 20 miles round trip all in one night. And uh, Second Samuel tells us a little more details about where these bodies were located in this city. 2 Samuel 21, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-shan. And when the Philistines had hanged them on the day, the Philistines killed Saul of Gilboa. Whoa, what a high-risk operation. Steal them out of the public square of a city. And I think there's an application for us here. Today, there's a lot of failed spiritual leaders out there. They were doing a lot of good for God. They were a lot of doing good for Christ, a lot of good for His kingdom. And then they just really went and nosedived down. And it's so easy for us always to focus on the nosedive down and never to focus on all the good things they did. And I think that's instructive for us here. The people of Jabesh Gilead had not forgotten all the good that Saul had done for them in the beginning of his reign. They didn't let it completely be tarnished by all the bad choices he made at the end of his reign. So folks, you know, when we see people like James McDonald and Harvest Bible Chapel or Mark Driscoll or, um, you know, Bill Hybels who did some amazing things for God in his kingdom and then sort of nosedive down at the end, It's so easy to just write them off and completely say negative things about them in total. Yeah, okay, they may have ended poorly, but be thankful for the things they did at the beginning of their time, which they did wonderful for Christ's kingdom. That's important. Lastly is this. (coughs) King Saul may have failed to save his people, but King Jesus didn't fail to save us. Obviously in 1 Samuel, King Saul fails to save his people. Second Samuel, spoiler alert, David's going to fail too. By the way, all the other kings are going to fail again and again. But folks, God sent one king that did not fail, and he saved us, and his name is Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your son, the one king who did not fail, Lord, as we uh, look at this text and we think about the topic of suicide, which is a painful topic to talk about at any time, I pray that we would be encouraged on the sanctity of life. I pray that we would always look at the complete sovereignty you have over all of our life. Just as you determine the day of our birth, you determine the day of our death, and we trust that you will use us in some way to bring glory to you and to make your name famous every single day of our life until you choose to close our eyes once and for all and to bring us home. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv Thank you for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.